It's Wednesday, January 31st, 2024. From Peachfish Productions, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Death stalks us from the moment of birth. It is the one inevitability of life. Our lives collectively, since the species found life, have been spent, to a large extent, staving off death. And still, today, after evolution, industrialization, the enlightenment, death is pushed off, but still present. And for so many, so readily present. 25,000 killed in Gaza, 200,000 killed in Ukraine, in Tigray, likely more than that. Death can come so suddenly, so immediately. Except in one context. In the United States, when a person is to be put to death by the state, we just can't do it right. And by right, I probably mean morally wrong. But I also mean quickly, swiftly, as happens every day, unintentionally, a thousand times a day on this globe. Someone is shot or crushed or stabbed or falls from a high place. It's not as if the United States lacks for the gumption. We have that never say die attitude, okay, wrong phrase, but we always think we can do it and solve our problem. And so the state of Alabama, finding it too hard to procure the usual ingredients in a lethal injection, went the route of nitrogen hypoxia, essentially suffocating someone with nitrogen. Kenneth Eugene Smart was the victim, or you could look at it as the experimentee in this first-of-its-kind U.S. execution. He was the prisoner, and he was a murderer. Alabama officials were pleased with the outcome, but like a coach who knows the team could do better, I think they all need to focus on execution. Here is how Alabama.com described the last gasps, literally, of Mr. Smith. Also, the Alabama Attorney General's office had said in prior court filings that uh, they expected him to lose consciousness pretty quickly after that gas began to flow, but media witnesses uh, saw that Ken Smith appeared to be conscious for several minutes after that gas began to flow, again, before he uh, proceeded to shake and writhe on that gurney for about two minutes. Alabama Corrections Commissioner John Q. Ham was mad, man, that anyone would say the execution was other than as anticipated quote, that was all expected and was in the side effects that we've seen or researched on nitrogen hypoxia. Nothing was out of the ordinary from what we were expecting. I suppose headlessness is what one expects from a guillotine. It doesn't make it something other than cruel and unusual. In a country where euthanasia is gaining more and more popularity, the dignity of death is extended to people with terminal illnesses, or in Canada's case, even depression. The dignity of a similarly painless death is denied to those people who actually don't want it, prisoners to be executed. You would think we could get this right. And by right, I really am strongly tacking towards wrong, morally wrong. I don't think we've got it right. Others disagree. Officials in Ohio, Mississippi, and Nebraska have expressed enthusiasm over nitrogen hypoxia, even knowing of its coda of two minutes of expected, unremarkable, apparently constitutional thrashing and convulsion. On the show today, when the status quo is objected to, it doesn't mean we can agree upon what the change needs to be. But first, Joshua Green is a national correspondent for Bloomberg Businessweek. He is out with a new book, The Rebels, 
Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and the struggle for a new American politics. A look at the left with Josh Green up next. If you want to understand United States politics, you have to understand the left, the progressives, maybe the DSA, maybe the squad. Here's a way to frame it as per Josh Green's new book, The Rebels, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and the struggle for a new American politics. Joshua Green, formerly of The Atlantic, recently of and still of Bloomberg Businessweek, is the author of this inside look at the left of the Democratic Party. Hello, Joshua. Great to be with you. Um, it's more, the book's more Elizabeth Warren than I thought it would be. I think that of the three, Sanders, Warren, and AOC, that Warren would move product less. But I think you quite rightly focus on her as the person, especially for her uh, comportment during the financial crisis, as someone who really put the new momentum of the left on the map. Was that part of your thinking about why she's so prominent? I think that's exactly right. Look, the, the, the idea for this book is, you know, my last book was about the rise of the populist right. Uh, you know, I was hanging out with Steve Bannon and Donald Trump in 16 and wrote a book about that. But I kind of come out of the policy world of the left. And back in 2009, during the financial crisis, I was writing a column for the Boston Globe, kind of got to know Elizabeth Warren. And I was just struck by the kind of seismic after effects that the financial crisis had and the kind of the years going forward. And so what this book is really about is not the left, but the rise of left populism, I call it, you know, told through the stories sequentially uh, of Elizabeth Warren, Bernie and AOC. Um, I think the reason Warren is an important historical figure is because she was the first one. If you remember back then, she was still a Harvard professor, but she was the cop of like the Wall Street bank bailout that the Obama administration gave. And she was the first person, the first Democrat to come out and publicly criticize Obama and Tim Geithner and all of those guys and say, listen, you know, the economy is in shambles. You guys are bailing out Wall Street banks. Nobody is paying attention to the middle class and helping those people. And if you look at the trajectory of our politics in the 15 years since that financial crisis, I think you see very clearly the rise of right-wing populism, which led to Trump in the White House. But you also see this, this equal sort of strain of left-wing populism, first in Warren's emergence as this kind of unexpected political star who revived a sort of economic populism that really hadn't been on the scene since like the 40s or 50s. Um, and then when she decided not to run for president, Bernie Sanders, who'd been around forever and nobody paid attention to, kind of took the baton and turned into this national figure and really established left populism as a component of the Democratic Party going forward. Uh, it's something that Biden, to everybody's surprise, uh, has taken up a lot of as president, you know, passing a big stimulus and kind of doing all the things after the COVID crash that Obama and Biden hadn't done after the great financial crash. And so the book really kind of traces the rise of this politics and how it's played out, not just in the story of my three characters, but throughout the presidency of Joe Biden. Was Elizabeth Warren, she tapped into something, and certainly she was very critical of people who were really bad actors, and it is accurate to say that the 
TARP bailout, for instance, or some of the other bailouts didn't, well, they literally didn't try to prosecute anyone, not that a bailout could prosecute anyone, but the administration didn't really villa, the Obama administration didn't vilify those actors who were really villains in the economic, in the financial disaster. But my question is, was she right? Was she, I thought her, my perception then, and going back, I think it's fair, she made, she had fair criticisms, but she staked a big claim about TARP being a big giveaway. And in retrospect, uh, TARP didn't cost the taxpayers anything, and TARP did its job. And was she right policy-wise on what she was criticizing? You know, here, here, so I get deep into this issue in the book, as you know, and the way to answer that is I was coincidentally embedded with Tim Geithner. I was a reporter for The Atlantic at the time and embedded with him for about six months during this period uh, when he was in the Treasury, when Obama first got in and they were kind of grappling like with the worst days of the crisis. And what Geithner was trying to do and what Obama wound up doing was they looked back at history and they said, traditionally, when there's uh, a financial crisis, it ends up costing the government tons and tons and tons, like trillions of dollars we think we have a smarter way to do this. Instead of spending our money, we're gonna take some money, $700 million, shove it in to recapitalize these Wall Street banks and let them take the lead in reviving the economy. And eventually, they'll pay that money back and the cost of the taxpayer will be very low. Uh, a novel idea, a daring idea, and it wound up working largely as Tim Geithner had wanted it to from a strict accounting standpoint. TARP did not end up costing U.S. taxpayers a ton of money. The problem was, I think I have the scene at the end of the book where me and Geithner are kind of sitting in his office and he's, he's, he's achieved this huge victory. And yet two days earlier, you know, Ted Kennedy had died and Democrats needed to win that Massachusetts Senate seat. And instead, they'd lost it to a Republican. It looked like Obama's whole agenda was falling apart. Right. And there was this huge backlash against Democrats for having bailed out Wall Street. And the problem with what Geithner and Obama did was that they neglected just the basic kitchen table interests of middle class voters who were caught up in the after effects of the crisis, every bit as much as banks were. And I think that has, has been the defining element in our politics ever since then. Because what happens after that? You have the rise of the Tea Party and Trump on the right, but you also have the emergence of Elizabeth Warren is this kind of not just a political figure, but a cultural figure. Like she ends up going on Jon Stewart on The Daily Show and becomes this kind of recurring character on The Daily Show. Uh, Jon Stewart, who's also a character in my book, is out there kind of wailing away on, on, on Wall Street and equity and all this kind of thing. And for a lot of kind of, you know, educated, democratic, civically minded people, um, they, they connected with what Elizabeth Warren was saying. And within a couple of years, you know, guys like you and me could talk about the Elizabeth Warren wing of the, of, of the Democratic Party. And it actually was a thing. And like people knew what it was. And congressmen and senators sort of identified themselves that way. And it gave this emergence to kind of a more of a, a middle class focused kind of non-neoliberal democratic politics that really hadn't existed in the 90s and the 2000s until she came along. So the critique of the entire Obama administration plan to recover from the financial crisis was not bold enough, not big enough, and didn't 
didn't focus on the bad actors. But you don't forget this. Perhaps people making that critique or more importantly, feeling that critique, voting for that critique. You know, the pitchforks weren't out enough. The blades weren't sharp enough. Maybe they forget that the first stimulus package didn't even pass the Republican Congress. That in retrospect, having gotten through the crisis, it's easy to say, oh, we should have gone harder. But at the time, it was extremely unclear, not just if anything would pass, but it was it was also unclear what the nature of the crisis was. And focusing on prosecutions, it's quite possible, could have been a waste of energy when what was really important was what they actually did, giving the banks and bad bankers uh, a little bit of a break, but also giving them a win and stabilizing the economy. And look what has happened to everyone with their 401ks and the stock market since then. So that's the alternate side of the argument. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Uh, you know, the, the the problem, though, is at the end of the day, this is about politics. And you, you, you can't, as a politician and as an administration, just ignore public opinion. You know, Geithner had a great phrase for this. I loved it at the time. I still loved it. He said, he used to tell me in his office, you know, what the American people want is Old Testament justice. And we're not going to sort of submit to that impulse. We're going to do the kind of, you know, brainy, low spending thing instead. But But it seems to me... What Americans really did want and, and kind of deserved w- was precisely that, was Old Testament justice. I mean, what is Donald Trump other than like a bald human fist and a threat to inflict Old Testament justice on all of your enemies from you know Wall Street to immigrants? What is Bernie Sanders, you know, who came on the scene in 2015 and caught fire? You know, what is he other than a jarring rebuke to the Tim Geithners of the world and the way that they kind of ran the bailout and the people that they focused. The fact that both of those politicians caught fire in the way that they did, and and Elizabeth Warren before them, I think shows that for as elegant and clever and successful from a policy standpoint, the Obama-Geithner response was, it failed dramatically from a political standpoint um, in ways that continue to have shockwaves all the way up into our current life. Okay, so I understand Old Testament justice is populism. That is uh, a component of it. But were there bankers, do the legal experts who you talk to tell you, oh, here are prosecutable figures. Mm-hmm. That's what the public wants. The public wants heads on a pike. Elizabeth Warren is a law professor. Were there clearly people who broke a law? What was the law they broke? And by not prosecuting them, would reasonable uh, prosecutors say we just weren't doing their job? Or are you more identifying there was this mood, people had enemies, people wanted blood. You have to respect the mood even if the law doesn't say, yes, here are clearly the laws that were broken. Yeah, I don't know that there was a big group of people out there in normal America kind of pining to see a banker behind bars, although there there were, you know, referrals. But I always hear that. I mean, the, the Elizabeth Warren wing will always say, and no one went to jail during the cri- financial crisis. And I say, who should have gone to jail and what laws were broken? And maybe you get, you know, some heads of uh, countrywide capital or something maybe fit that bill for small crimes. But in general, I don't know. So I think about populism and I think about anger and I understand that you have to deal with it as a force, but that doesn't Mm -hmm. mean, hey, maybe I'm just too Geithner-esque and Obama-esque, but it doesn't mean that, you know, it fits with the facts. 
Mike, you're just a tool of Goldman Sachs. We all know. No, I, I think. <laughs> I wish look, I were. I think on the. I, I think on on the the sort of jailing fund. It, it's it is more the symbolic value of you know the the people that created this crash that have devastated the lives of so many people uh, in America simply being held to account in some way, shape, or form. I mean, the flaw with the Geithner plan, which was also its feature, was instead of just sending out all this kind of government money, taxpayer money, we're going to stuff the banks full of money and hope that they can recover, right? But in order not to spook the banks, in order to get them investing, in order for them to uh, you know, instill confidence in investors, we can't at the same time be trying to jail their CEO. It's a choice we're going to have to make. And it was a choice that the Obama administration did make, that that's not the path we're going to follow. Mm -hmm. um, maybe that was the right path. Maybe that was the wrong path. But I think it was symbolic to a lot of people of the fact that not only are the sort of malefactors of this crisis not being jailed, but they're actually, at the same time, being bailed out and stuffed with money while I, Joe Sixpack, can't pay my mortgage, got laid off from my job. Like, where is my bailout? Why isn't my government looking out for me? And I think that that's an especially powerful thought process if you're a Democrat, because Democrats are supposed to be the party of unions, the party of the working class. And in the years after the 2009 crisis, those were generally the people that were struggling the most. Right. So my analysis is that if, uh, in retrospect, a good position for a politician to be in, and they don't have to be cynical, if these are really Bernie Sanders' position, is to have an administration that actually passes laws that are a bit technocratic, that are a bit bloodless, but that actually get us through the crisis. Yep. And then you could be the Old Testament Jeremiah who says, how dare you? The people are suffering and the bankers are getting fat. That's exactly who Bernie Sanders is. It's a great position to be in. Elizabeth Warren is that too, with a little more uh, technocratic meat on the bones. It doesn't mean that that was the best way out of the crisis. It's the best way about how to deal or navigate with the emotions of the voters after the crisis. But I don't know. In fact, I, I strongly believe that if Elizabeth Warren were to literally write the rules, it's quite possible we would have had a very different outcome from the crisis. From the 2009 crisis? Mm-hmm. Oh, I think so too, but I think it would have been a better outcome. Mm -hmm. And no, I know the reason. Know. <laughs> the reason I no, the reason I think that though, I mean, like we, we kind of wound up having this weird, real world test of it, right? Because we have the crisis in two thousand and nine, you know, and Warren is not a very prominent figure back then, but she's got a platform as kind of the tarp cop, a public platform, and she was pushing a lot of these. Um, you know, kind of middle class focused policy ideas to be part of the Obama response, the, you know, stimulus and beefed up unemployment and student loan freezes and eviction freezes and all that kind of stuff and didn't get it. But now you flash forward to the COVID crisis, especially once a Democratic president was in there. And what is Joe, what's the first thing Joe Biden does? Gets in there, does another stimulus. He extends the unemployment benefits. He does the full Liz Warren kind of poo-poo platter of things we're going to do. And the way that Biden talks about it, think about what he says. We're building the recovery from the middle out, right? That is that is in complete contradistinction to the way the recovery worked in 2009 when it was necessarily from the top down. Like, you know, Obama people used to say, look, we understand there's bad optics, but like 
the, the way this has to work that will be cheapest to the taxpayer is if we give it to the banks and let that kind of trickle through to the middle class, keep the banks from collapsing. This will work out cheapest and best for everybody in the end. Maybe it did from like a budgeting standpoint, but you cannot deny, Mike, the political effects um, that stemmed from the reaction to the 2009 crisis on the left and the right. I think if you'd run Elizabeth Warren's planner, if Obama had done some version of it that recognized not so much the need for Old Testament justice or jailing anybody, but simply the fact that like the middle class needed help, needed to be attended to, you might not have had quite the political backlash in America that we ended up having over the next six, seven years that gave rise to people like Trump. I think it might have been a little bit different. It might have. Uh, you know, I think that the financial crisis very much risked the crisis of faith in the banking system. And when that is lost, all can be lost. And so they mm -hmm. focused on restoring that faith, giving the banks ballast. The crisis of uh, COVID was different. People didn't blame the bankers. People, there was snags in the supply chain and you had to get through that. And then once you did, uh, things worked themselves out and inflation is lowering. And, you know, the the politics of it, I don't have to tell you, are entirely different. When a Republican politician says we want to give uh, tri a trillion dollars or a few trillion dollars, it's a lot easier to get that through a Congress than when a Democratic politician dares not go over $800 billion. Right. It you don't, have to, you don't have to twist any arms, if you're, any Democratic arms, if you're Donald Trump to get that money out the door. No, that's... I, I think that's absolutely right. And if also the right. counterfactual is if, you know, if the 2009 financial crisis had more stimulus and had more debt and student loan forgiveness, which asterisk didn't actually go through in its current iteration, if that had more, there wouldn't be this much anger. Okay, well, we had the, let's look at the last crisis, the coronavirus crisis and the stimulus. There was a lot of stimulus and there seems to be just as much anger, more anger than there ever was. Yeah, although I think wouldn't you agree most of that anger is more directed at at, at, at masks and the sort of, you know, Anthony Fauci and the, the, the kind of medical cultural element rather than I'm angry because I don't have a job. Because the yeah. great success, and I'll credit Trump here on this too, the great success of the, of the government's response to the COVID crash, this is a crash that was even deeper than the great financial crisis in 2009, more unemployment, but he came rushing in and basically made all those people whole with the benefits. And you know, to the extent that US poverty actually fell in the year after the COVID crash because there was so much money being transferred from the government to people to, yeah. to not lose their homes, right? To not get evicted. So here we are, you, know, you flash forward two years after that, Biden comes in and kind of tops it off. And you know, unemployment was like what? 10% when Obama got reelected in 2012. I mean, it was high like forever after that crisis. But within two years of, of the COVID crash, America had recovered all those jobs. We've got an unemployment rate that we haven't seen since the Eisenhower era. People have savings in the bank. Like, you're right. They're not they're not happy. We're all not getting along. It's like, it's not like a Coca-Cola commercial, but but at least at least they're angry over different shit than they are. You know what I mean? It's not like it's not like they're mad that Wall Street took all their money. They're mad that, you know, their kids have to do school through Zoom or the people are scolding them at the supermarket because <laughs> their masks shit, you're saying. <laughs> slipped or well, it's a different shit. You know, yeah. let's go back. This is interesting what you're saying. It The premise of the book in our conversation is that 
because the financial crisis was mishandled by the more neoliberal, and I think you treat that term fairly, technocratic Obama administration, because it was mishandled, it breathed into life all this anger. And then you contrast it with the better handling of this latest crisis. And my point is, but the anger was still breathed into life. There's still just as much anger. I don't know that addressing financial situations correctly is the difference in what creates anger or what abates anger. So then we have to get back to, well, even if the anger would have been there, or I'm, you know, we only have a sample size of two, but even if the anger would have been there, then we get to the question, well, still, would it have been the better answer for the financial crisis, a little more Old Testament stuff, divorced of the feelings that it brought about? And I don't know. I don't think so. I'm not sure. So what is the case? What is the counterfactual? It seems mostly based on the feelings it created. And my point is those feelings are going to be there because of social media, are going to be exploited by the polarization of the parties. Those feelings were very likely to be there even if the financial crisis were handled uh, via a Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren diagnosis. Yeah, I'm not sure they were. I mean, I think the feelings on the last cri- uh, the 2009 crisis were, were, were kind of an own goal for Democrats because, you know, and this is the history I go through in brief in, in The Rebels, you know, they really had beginning in kind of 1978, it's where I locate the beginning of my book, uh, begun to be taken over by Wall Street forces by people like Bob Rubin, who started out as just fundraisers for Democrats, raising money for congressional candidates, and flash forward a decade, and, you know, Rubin is Bill Clinton's top economic advisor. And all of a sudden, you know, the way the Democrats view the political economy begins to shift. Like, they're no longer the party of, you know, union guys and working class voters. They're now kind of woke financiers who want to do things differently. You know, the term we use, and I use in the book, is neoliberalism. Um, but basically what it is, is kind of a market-focused, hands-off view of how the government should pursue liberal social policies. And all that seemed to work until it stopped working in 2008. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the reasons it stopped working, and this is sort of the thesis of the book, is because Democrats lost sight of who they represent, uh, you know, how they shape their policies to help middle-class Americans. And the fact that they weren't able to do that in the wake of the crisis, I think, was the earthquake uh, that produced a number of aftershocks, one of them being Donald Trump, um, but one of them being, um, you know, the the emergence of this strain of left populism that had very much been a part of the Democratic Party in the 1930s and the 1940s under Roosevelt, but really kind of disappeared in the 1960s as liberalism began to focus more on issues like civil rights, women's rights, um, the environment, and even like economic stuff, it was more through kind of like a Ralph Nader consumer lens than it mm-hmm. was financial regulations and not breaking up the big banks. You know, by by the 90s and the 2000s, you know, Democrats working with Wall Street just kind of came to seem like a free lunch. Like these guys could donate a ton of money, they could fund the party, they could serve in high office as treasury secretary or national economic council director or what have you. Um, and you know that, that led Democrats to a point where when that financial crisis happened, yes, they had a very elegant bailout, which, which you know, you've defended throughout here. And, and, and it did help keep us out of a Great Depression. And, and I think it's all to their credit that it did that. But my point is that it had enormous political ramifications that didn't really become clear until everything fell apart in the financial crisis. 
Joshua Green is the author of The Rebels, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and the struggle for a new American politics. Thanks for putting up with me, Joshua. Mike, it is always a pleasure. I appreciate <laughs> it. Thank you for having me. And now the spiel. A critique is not a solution, and a protest is not a path forward, but we so often make the mistake. There is annoyance or anger at the status quo, sometimes among differing constituencies, so we tend to assume that there is agreement beyond the idea that things need to change. A simple example that comes to my mind pretty easily, media bias. Polls show people think there is media bias. Trust in media is at an all-time low. According to Pew and Gallup, Gallup finds 39% of no confidence in national news media at all. That's up from, or down from, 27% in 2016. Pew finds that while 50 58% say they at least have some trust in the information that comes from national news organizations. In 2019, that number was 65%. So that's going down too. But here's the thing. If you had three people in a bar, two who don't trust the media and one who does, it's just as likely that the distrusters would have more in common with the media or with the people who trust the media than they'd have with each other. Because while there's a clear partisan bias to mistrust, and it's mostly conservative saying the media is too liberal, a third of those with a critique says the media is too conservative. So if you reform the media, the corrective would satisfy most complainers, but leave a third much worse off than before. This all brings me to soup. And French protesters, though not French onion soup, it was tomato, I think. The protesters themselves were brought to soup. They brought it to the Louvre and attacked the Mona Lisa. These were protesters from Food Response, a part of a coalition of climate activists who threw soup at the painting of the stoic Italian countess. She did not break a smile or break her somewhat quixotic expression. She took it all in stride as the protesters yelled, what's more important, art or the right to a healthy, durable diet? It is such an apt comparison. I never realized it until soup was thrown at the Mona Lisa. I could ask them, hey, what's more important, your particular right arm or the entire climate? Come on, you call yourself a lefty, prove it. But most accounts of this protest, and to listen to the activists themselves, claimed common cause with another mass French protest that was stewing, though not literally in this case, stew. In southern France, farmers setting a truck of red peppers on fire, then flipping it. Tires set aflame, trash dumped outside government offices. The truckers massed outside of Paris were protesting, among other things, taxes and regulations. But some of these regulations were the green regulations, sustainability standards thrust on them by the EU. In other words, the exact opposite of what the climate activists want. So there's a shared discontent, vastly differing agendas. 
Which brings me to Israel. Perhaps you heard last week the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, was besieged by the families of the hostages being held by Hamas. Do something, they implored. Their ire was focused on the Netanyahu government. So it would be easy to assume or imply, as this BBC reporter does, that the families of the hostages oppose the aggressive military policy of Netanyahu, which he described this way. He is determined to push on with this offensive with the aim, in his words, of complete destruction of Hamas. Uh, But the families of the hostages and many Israelis, in fact, the majority of Israelis, according to opinion polls, feel that the priority needs to be the release of those hostages. Notice the contrast. Not a continued war, but the release of the hostages. The reporter doesn't lie. Returning hostages is the top priority, but not as opposed to defeating Hamas. The Israel Democracy Institute polled on that very finding. They asked each Israeli to rate from one to five, with five being very important, each of the goals of the war. Release the hostages? 93% gave it a five, said it was very important. Topple Hamas? 94% said very important. Though when asked to choose between those two, more said release or gain the release of the hostages. The Times of Israel reporter Sam Sokol spoke to some of the protesters who stormed the Knesset and asked them about their demands. They were livid that any humanitarian aid was getting into Gaza while their families were being held held in Gaza. One protester told me he wants two, what he called two slightly contradictory things, which is one, cut off all humanitarian aid to Gaza, two, negotiate a hostage deal involving a secession of hostilities. So don't assume that within Israel, release the hostages means stop the war. Netanyahu is being criticized even by some family members of hostages as being too weak. Of course, many Hostage families do think that he should call for a ceasefire for the return of their family members, and that is being discussed. And there are many others who, of course, want the hostages back, but they know it's going to be a long war. Those people don't show up as protesters on the news. They are picked up in polls where the efforts of the war are still much more popular than not. I think too often we mistake In those with whom we share a critique, we mistake that we must share a common worldview. And that is not always the case. Consensus on the path ahead so often does not correlate with a common discontent at the present. And that's it for today's show. The Quaint Mallards produced the gist. It's Corey Wara, producer, Joel Patterson, senior producer, Michelle Pasca, though not in that group, is the director of special projects for Peachfish Productions. To advertise on the gist, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, And thanks for listening. <laughs>